I remember last um, March, um, around uh, the end of March, as Emily and I were anticipating our daughter Caroline being born in June, uh, we thought to ourselves about two, two weeks into the pandemic, surely it'll be normal when Caroline is born. Uh, surely life will return to normal, right? Um, I can't remember how many days it was to flatten the curve, but whatever it was, we thought surely then uh, life will return to normal. And uh, this past year and a half has been anything but normal for all of us, right? Um, in fact, uh, this uh, coming Friday, we celebrate uh, one year um, uh, for our daughter Caroline. Um, and I know the Woods uh, share that sentiment uh, as well as they celebrate uh, the birthday of Tucker uh, just a few days uh, after. Um, and we, we thought it would be normal by the time that Caroline came. We're hoping that life will be especially more normal by the time Graham comes in August. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not here to adjudicate what normal will look like, but I do have a question, assuming that life does return to normal in some way, shape, or form. When life returns to normal, what difference will it make in your relationship with God? What difference will it make in the way you have pursued God or are pursuing Him? As I thought about that question, I think for some, this past year and a half has allowed, we've allowed challenges, uh, whether it be personally or because of the pandemic, to crowd out our time with God, to overshadow our commitment to God's people. Some have found uh, the difficulties of this season to be an invitation to draw close to God. Uh, to, to draw nearer to him because you found yourself to be empty. You found yourself to be wanting and needing God. And when I think about being on the other side, uh, of especially of this summer and the fall, and we return to whatever normal looks like, I suspect once we get there that we'll have the same temptations that we've experienced for this past year and a half. It's been a unique season, no doubt, uh, one in which I pray we never repeat in our lifetimes. But I believe the same temptations will be there. The, the craziness and the busyness of life returning to normal, our normal schedules. I, I, uh, Emily and I have joked that we've forgotten how to get our family ready and out of the house. You know, it's like we leave places and we're like, oh, we don't have diapers for our children. Or, you know, we forgot, you know, very important things. You're like... I, you know, I came to church. I don't even know where my Bible is. You know, I'm the pastor. Uh, you, you forget how to, how to kind of get out and, and, and some of the normal rhythms. Some of you, uh, maybe it's not getting out of the house. That's a challenge. There'll be something else. Your life will return to normal. Your social calendar will fill up. You won't do those Zoom meetings. Instead, you'll do them in person. And, and then we'll realize that as tired as we were of Zoom, we'll be tired of driving to and from the places that we have to go. The temptations to be busy and to be stretched thin that we all felt two years ago will fill them again. And with that craziness and busyness as we return to normal, there'll be the temptation to crowd out our time with God and our commitment to the church. And at the same time, some of us, as we return to normal, we'll feel, we'll feel more unsure, we'll feel hesitant. I've had conversations with multiple people who have great anxiety about returning to normal, whether it be returning to the office or returning to school or just some of the dynamics that are associated with that, that there's so much still uncertainty. There's anxiety that comes with it. And in those moments, Lord willing, we'll be drawn close to God and close to his people to encourage us 
and our need for community. And I, I bring this up because I think Malachi is surprisingly a great book for us to consider as we think about returning to normal. Uh, because what we find in Malachi is Malachi as a prophet is addressing the people of Israel some 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah. Those are the last two prophets that we look like. If you remember with Haggai and Zechariah to, to kind of give us our uh, scope and place in the Bible timeline, uh, this is after the Babylonian exile. So some 70 years have passed since 586 BC when the Babylonians defeated Israel, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, and destroyed Jerusalem and took away the believers. And we've seen the, the life of Daniel has basically taken place. And, and now the Persians have come and, uh, and have defeated the Babylonians. And the first wave of, of Israelites were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall. And that's what uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. And, and Haggai and Zechariah were prophets during this time, encouraging the people to be faithful in the work by remaining faithful to God and pressing on with the work of rebuilding. Well, now everything's rebuilt. All the work has been done, so to speak. And Israel's back to normal. The temple being rebuilt, Jerusalem being reestablished, life seems normal. And remember, Haggai and Zechariah were, were encouraging God's people by reminding them of God's promises. As they returned to the land, God promised to, to be there and meet with them. He's promised to send his Messiah to restore and redeem them, to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. And yet here they are, back to normal, so to speak, but the Persians are still in power. Haggai and Zechariah have come and gone. They had been faithful to, to do the work of rebuilding. They had been called to repentance. And now in all of this, they needed to get back to living for God in the midst of their everyday lives. And Malachi comes along and has a message for the people of Israel as they return to normal. And what I find fascinating about the prophets, and I've, I've kind of admitted this a few times along the way, the prophets, uh, as you walk through the minor prophets, it's, you know, um, it, it has the same kind of rhyme and reason. Uh, every prophet has a, a similar story. Um, and, uh, and it sounds in part like a bad country song, you know, it gets worse and uh, then something comes along and there's some hope at the end and uh, and then, you know, it's just on repeat, you know, it's just the same song. It seems like every, um, every book. And, and in fact, as we come to Malachi, what Malachi has to say to Israel, 100 years after they've been reestablished back in Jerusalem, his message sounds extremely familiar. It sounds just like what the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, sounds just like what Hosea was saying long before 722 B.C. in the Assyrian exile and, and long before 586 B.C. in the Babylonian exile. God's word to Israel remained the same. Consider, consider just this brief overview. We'll dive into more specifics here in a moment. Uh, but I think these five themes um, can summarize what we see throughout all of the minor prophets. And maybe you've been uh, noting these themes as we've been walking through them, but maybe just to, to kind of uh, crystallize them in our hearts and our minds as we think about this. Uh, these five themes you can see in all of the minor prophets. The first is God's sovereignty. You see God is sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over Israel. He's working out his plan 
Over 24 times in the book of Malachi, the Lord is referred to as the Lord Almighty. He's sovereign. He's working all things out according to his plan. Nothing is happening either in discipline or judgment or in redemption and restoration apart from God's sovereignty. And then we also see God's inevitable judgment of sin. In chapter 3, verse 5, God says to the people of Israel, I will draw near in judgment. God is a holy and righteous God. He is just. He will not overlook our sin. He's gracious and, and, and loving for those who repent, but for those who persist in sin, God will judge. We see his inevitable judgment. We also see his amazing love. The beginning of Malachi begins uh, just like Hosea does with this portrayal of God's love. I have loved you, he says in my, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. And then as we consider our uh, inevitable judgment of sin and God's amazing love, we have this call to repentance, this need to get right with God. Return to me and I will return to you, Malachi 3, chapter 7 says. And then as we see woven in through all of the prophets is this anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. You see how it says that the messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord, the New Testament tells us, is going to be John the Baptist. But it says right after that, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi, just like the rest of the prophets, ends with this forward-looking anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior. So God's word hasn't changed throughout all of this. His word has remained the same. And if God's word hasn't changed, I think what we need to hear, just like the people of Israel needed to hear, God's word doesn't change, but we need our hearts to change. We need renewed hearts to receive his word. On one hand, it can seem boring that God says the same thing over and over again, but um, as uh, we celebrate Father's Day, I've lived long enough now as a dad to realize that that's part of the job is to say the same things over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's part of the duty of the father to be faithful and consistent in, in what he says. And God is a perfect heavenly father as I'm inconsistent in what I say. God doesn't waver in what he says to his people. The problem is that we waver. The problem is that we need new hearts. We need to remember the, the love of God. And, and that love of God softens our, our hearts and transforms us that we might then in turn offer our whole hearts to God in worship and obedience. That's what Malachi is about as we think about returning to normal. The thing that we need most is renewed hearts to remember the unchanging word of God which calls us to return to him and to renew our hearts in worship and obedience to God. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. I mentioned to you that Malachi's writing, and it says the oracle of the word of the Lord. The word oracle can also be translated burden. It has this representation of a heavy word that God has for his people, and it's a burden that Malachi has to share this with the people of Israel. And they've been back in the land. They've, they've gone back to as normal as it can get. 
And I think what's happened for the people of Israel as they've returned to the land is their expectations aren't fulfilled. The promises seem long and coming. The Messiah hasn't come. The, the glory that Haggai promised that would fill the temple and, and return to the people of Israel hasn't returned. The Persians are still in power. God hasn't delivered them from their enemies. And in all of this, the people, I believe, have grown discouraged, have grown disheartened. It's, it's in many ways similar to what happened with Haggai and Zechariah as they were rebuilding the temple. When it was harder than they thought, they got discouraged. And it's one thing to be discouraged in your work. It's another thing to become disillusioned in your daily life, to become discouraged when life doesn't look like what you want it to look like. When it's disappointing, when things don't go as planned, when it's harder than you expected, when there's, there's more <clears throat> things that you can't handle than you thought. And in all of those moments, the temptation in our life is to allow our circumstances to dictate our view of God. I don't know if you've done that, but I know I have. I've allowed my circumstances, what's taking place and my expectations of what I think should happen in my life, in my work, in my relationships to dictate how I think about God. If my circumstances are bad, God, why don't you love me? God, why don't you care? God, why aren't you doing something about this? This isn't the way that it was supposed to go. This isn't what I expected. And we allow uh, the moment that we find ourselves in to dictate how we look at God. And I don't think it's an accident <clears throat> that God's word through Malachi comes and it begins in verse two in this way. I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? <clears throat> Is not... Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left the heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild, Edom is the people of Esau. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." I have loved you, says the Lord. <clears throat> now, I have to imagine that Malachi 1-2, the first four words are amazing, but the next explanation make you uncomfortable. I have loved you, God says to Israel, but Esau I have hated, he says in, in verse 3. You see, what God is saying here is he's reminding Israel of his covenantal love. The language of Jacob I chose and Esau I hated is not language of animosity and affection. It's language of choosing. It's language of election. I chose Jacob and I didn't choose Esau. The, the promise of redemption, God said, would come through the line of Jacob and not through Esau. And, and why, why would God use this description to, to tell Israel that he loved them. How is that an encouragement? Hey, I love you. I, I chose you and I didn't choose them. Because it's a reminder. 
even as he uses the name Jacob, if you kind of remember your, your Bible history, if you think back and, and perhaps even just jot down Genesis 26 and 27 and, and 28 and go and read about Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. He was the one who had the right to the inheritance. He was the one who had the right to the blessing. But God didn't give it to him. And he didn't give it to Jacob because Jacob was special. In fact, the name Jacob itself is a reminder. Jacob was a swindler. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. God choosing Jacob has nothing to do with Jacob deserving it. And it has everything to do with the grace of God. God choosing Jacob over Esau is a reminder that he chooses not on the basis of his foreknowledge of what we will do, not on the basis of our character, but on the, the, the unchanging love of God. Why did you choose us, Israel? Because I loved you. Why do you love us? Not because you deserve it, but because I'm God. We, we search <clears throat> looking for an answer for why God would love us. And the answer is in part that there is, there is no answer for why God loves us. There is no reason for why God loves us found in ourselves. The only answer for God's love is it springs from the heart of God because that's who he is. And I believe <clears throat> that Malachi begins here <clears throat> to encourage Israel, as they've grown discouraged, as they've grown disillusioned, remember God's love. I think the thing that we need most as we think about living our daily life and following God in our daily life is the reminder that God has loved us, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of who he is. And it's a covenantal love. And when you understand the love of God, you respond <clears throat> Like verse 5 says, great is the Lord. God's love reveals how great he is, the, the magnificence of his character. And if we're going to follow God faithfully, faithfully in our daily life, we need, to, we need to be reminded of God's unchanging love so that, hear me, when our circumstances don't go as planned, when life is harder than we thought or just like it used to be, when our circumstances don't change, when our return to normal doesn't work out in our favor in the way that we think, in those moments, what you're tempted to do is to think God is absent. God doesn't care. He's distant. But God's unchanging word reminds us that he's standing there saying, I have loved you. But do you know we're just like Israel? And what unfolds in the book of Malachi is God makes a statement and then Israel disputes his statement. And then God responds. And we see this three different times or multiple different times, this kind of three-part uh, exchange. And, and I think that the reason that's important for us to remember what Israel does with God here is they respond back to him in these questions. It's a reminder to us that if we lose sight of God, if we lose sight of the love of God, if you will, what unfolds in our hearts as we return to normal is complacency and compromise. Every time when we lose sight of the heart of God, we lose sight of his love for us displayed not in 
our own effort, in our own doing, but in his doing for us in Christ, we always grow complacent. We grow indifferent to God. It just happens. God didn't move. We moved further down from him. It's like putting your, your tube in the lazy river. It's not that God's moving. You're just drifting away. We grow complacent, and sooner or later in our complacency, we'll compromise. Y'all better listen quick. Here's what's going to happen. As we think through what it looks like to follow God, I I want you to see um, as God, in, in many ways, reminds his people of his love, he then confronts them in their sin, and we're going to see that those Those who live out of the love of God are going to do at least six things. We're going to see genuine worship when we live out of the love of God. Look at uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Notice how it begins. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? But you say, how have we despised your name? What do you mean, God? We've showed you honor. How have we not honored you? And God begins to unfold their lack of genuine worship. You see, if we're living out of the love of God, genuine worship will define our lives. Instead, when we grow complacent and compromise, what happens is God says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those who are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present them to your governor. Will he accept you or your show of favor? God's saying, when you come to offer sacrifices in the temple, you offer the second-rate sacrifice. You, you offer the, the sacrifice that can't be used uh, in your fold, and instead you bring that to God. It, it's like, it's like <clears throat> uh, promising to, <clears throat> to bring a meal to someone, uh, but then just bringing them whatever you have left over from that night's dinner. It's like saying, God, I'm, I'm going to, to, to sacrifice greatly for you, and instead you bring him second best. They had compromised their worship of God. They weren't even offering sacrifices that cost them anything. And God says, oh, that, you are one, that there was one among you who would shut the doors so that you wouldn't even be able to kindle the fire on the altar in vain. I wish somebody would go close the temple so that you couldn't even offer me a second-rate sacrifice. God is worthy of our worship. But instead, they've offered him second-rate worship. And, and the thing that we need to have genuine worship in our life, look, look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name. Second time he said it, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Skip down to verse 14, for he says, for I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. The the antidote to half-hearted worship is a big view of God. You know, the, the, the way to fix indifference in worship isn't through changing style. It isn't in picking different songs. Those things don't change genuine worship. What what begins to, to create genuine worship in the heart of the people of God is a view of God that's bigger 
than what we currently have. We need to see God as worthy of our honor, worthy of our praise, worthy of our fear, not cowering fear, but being in awe of God. We need to know that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, that his name one day will be great among the nations. And if God's name is great among the nations, in the end, how can we live now, right now, where we find ourselves and his name be anything less than great in our hearts? What song arises in your heart to praise God? Does your view of God cause you to, to boil over with, with praise, with, with worship, with adoration? When you think about God as your heart, I'm not, I'm not talking about emotionalism, but I'm, I'm talking about a view of God that causes you to respond and say you're worthy. We need genuine worship. And we also see personal holiness. Both the, the priest and the people in chapter 2 Verses 1 through 9, God points out that the priests who are called to honor his name are actually leading the people astray. He says that back in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, he chose the priest so that they would stand in awe of his name and offer instruction to the people that the, leaps, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge and the people should seek instruction from their mouth. But instead... The priests of Israel have turned aside. They've corrupted the covenant. They've despised and abased before the people. They've shown partiality in their instruction. God's people who are called to lead were compromising. They were compromised in their teaching because they had become compromised in their devotion. And it's a reminder that the, the people called to lead among God's people are no different than the rest of God's people. The, the teaching of the church must always be preceded by devotion. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't care how, um, what role you have in the church, what role you serve in, whether it's something visible or something behind the scenes, your work for God will never, will never out outpace your devotion for God. Your work for God will never outpace your devotion for God. Everything spills over from your devotion to God. Your devotion to God isn't, <clears throat> let me see if I could say it this way. Your devotion to God isn't more important than your work for God. Your devotion for God is infinitely more important than your work for God. Your, your devotion, your love for him, that, that you would, as it says in chapter 2, verse 5, stand in awe of his name. That's the beginning of ministry. To be in awe of God, to love him, to worship him, to be devoted to him, is what precedes our work for God. That's why at TCC, when we talk about making disciples, the, the work of declaring and displaying the gospel and making disciples is preceded by delighting in him because our devotion precedes our work for God and, and God confronts the priest because their devotion has become compromised and in turn their work for God is compromised. And the people of Israel in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, 
being led astray by the priests, the people compromised their personal holiness. We, we said genuine worship, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Personal holiness, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, flows out of a love for God. But God confronts their lack of holiness. And, and instead, we see the people, as they've returned to the land, they've looked around the nations, and they, particularly pointing to the, to the men amongst Israel, have forsaken their wives to pursue, the wives, pursue women from the surrounding nations. And this isn't, <clears throat> this isn't about the people of Israel marrying somebody from another nation, from somebody from another ethnicity. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse chapter two, verse 11, at the very end. It says, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary which he loves. Not he has married the daughter of a foreign nation, but he has married the daughter of a foreign God. You see, the the people of Israel <clears throat> were faithless to their wives and pursued not just the women of the nations around them, but foreign gods of the nations around them. The intermarriage that Malachi is pointing out, if you look in Ezra, Ezra points this out in the people of Israel. It's not about the other nations. It's about the idolatry of God's people. It's about their following after the other gods. <clears throat> And the reality is we often are willing to change our theology to to suit our morality. Let me say that again. We're often willing to change our theology to suit our morality. It's, It's not the other way around. It's not that we've become so intellectual and we figured out that our theology was wrong and we need to change it and so that means that we can do these things no it's our heart is tempted to run away from god and to run towards sin and because we can't live with the cognitive dissonance between knowing what god says and how we're living we have to change what god says to fix uh, to fix it so it will suit how we live that's not how personal holiness works God calls us to live our lives in accordance with his word. And just like, just like genuine worship stems from a heart that has a big view of God, our personal holiness, look at it, it says it two times at the end of verse 15 and the end of verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your, of your youth. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Do not be faithless to your covenant commitment to your to your spouse, and he's addressing adultery here, and do not be faithless to God. Your personal holiness stems from, from your faith rooted in God, who he is and what he's done for you that calls us to live our lives differently. And then he goes on and he talks about righteous living in chapter two seventeen through chapter 3, verse 5. We see righteous living comes out of a heart that's convinced of the love of God, but Israel, not... Doubting the love of God, they say to themselves, God says that you have wearied me with your words, but they say, how have we wearied you? And he goes on and he says, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord is what they say and delights in them. Or they say, where is the God of justice? 
God hasn't kept true on his promise. And, and God says, here it begins to, to point to the future. He says, I'm going to send my messenger and he will prepare a way before me. And then the Lord is going to come, which I think is a reference to the Messiah. And he's going to refine the sin in Israel. He's going to purify his people. And then he says in verse five, I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against. And he's going to lay out what he lays out here is, is unrighteousness among God's people, sorcerers, which is in essence idolatry and false gods, adulterers against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and don't fear me, says the Lord. They've lived even as they've returned to the land unrighteously. This is the very character, the very disobedience that the prophets before exile were condemning in Israel. And we're reminded as people, we, we believe that our marching orders are the great commission to make disciples of all nations. Do you know that we'll fail in carrying out the great commission if we forget the great commandment? To love our neighbor as ourself? And that's exactly what Israel was doing. Here they were trying to say they were faithful to God, but then they mistreated one another. They mistreated even the most vulnerable among them. And God continually reminds his people that who you are, who you claim to be, at least in part, must be demonstrated in the way that you treat others. It's so, it's so possible to believe theoretically the right things about God and fail to treat people the way that God calls us to treat them. And time and time again, God's calling his people out. Calling them out, saying, you're, you're going through the motions. You're saying the right things. But the way you treat one another exposes the reality of what you really believe. Where your heart really is. He's calling us to righteous living. And he goes on and he calls us to generosity for the Lord in verse 6 of chapter 3. The Lord doesn't change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, which I think in part is just that reminder. Remember Jacob, the swindler, the liar, uh, the one who deceives? God doesn't change. Jacob often changes to his own benefit. From the days of your father, you turned aside from my statutes. Return to me. But instead of hearing that and humbling themselves, the people say, how shall we return? And God says that you've robbed me. And they say, well, how have we robbed you? And he goes through and he says that you failed to bring the tithe, the full tithe into the storehouse to give back to God a tenth of what he had given to them. This is the only place that <clears throat> the tithe has, is talked about as explicitly as it is here. This isn't the pattern of, um, of New Testament giving, but it's an important reference for us because if God doesn't have your heart, you won't let go of your stuff. Are you tracking with me? If God doesn't have your heart, you're not let go of your stuff. And even more so, you're not gonna lay down your life. And he points out to the people of Israel, it's probably one of the only places where God says, test me. There are some TV preachers who say, if you give a seed, God will multiply it tenfold. God may do that. But often, in response to our generosity, our sacrificial giving, God meets us with spiritual blessings. 
And he does here challenge them. He says, he says, bring me your tithe and watch what I'll do. How I will, how I will return. He says, put me to the test in verse nine. And how I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He calls out the the lack of generosity among his people as ultimately being rooted in their lack of returning to him. If if we're going to return to the Lord, it's going to be marked by a generosity. The gospel frees us to be generous. When in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 5, go and look what Paul said of the Corinthians. He said that they gave themselves first to God and then they gave to our need. Generosity begins when we give ourselves wholly to God and then the purse strings follow. Our time, our talents, our resources follow when we give ourselves to God. And a lack of generosity among God's people is a demonstration that we doubt God's love and we doubt the certainty of the future promises of God. And then, and then we see that, that a humble service marks a heart that's convinced of the love of God. Look in verse 13, it says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But they say, how have we spoken against you? And they said, it's in vain to serve God. What profit is it in keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? He said, what good is it to follow God, to to run after him? It's not getting us anywhere. And instead, the evildoers, they prosper, but we get nowhere. And God says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And they had a a book of remembrance. It's a, a reference to reminding ourselves of God's promises. And it describes these people as those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And in the end, God's going to show the difference between those who fear him and those who don't. And the difference is between those who are willing to humbly give themselves to God and those who withhold themselves from God, not convinced that he's going to come through for them. See, as we return to normal, it may seem radical, but the most normal thing that the people of God can do is to give themselves fully to God. At the end of the day, what Malachi is saying to God's people is remember God's love. And in remembering God's love, don't grow complacent. Don't compromise. Give yourself fully to me. I was reminded of David Livingston, a missionary to Africa. And Livingston said to one of his students, he was from England and was speaking to his Cambridge students, and reflecting on his service. And he said this, and, and it's, I've known this at the end of this quote, but reading the full quote this week uh, particularly struck me. And I want you to think about whether or not you would say, or if you've believed in your heart, what good is it to serve God? What profit is it to serve God, to keep his charge and to walk in his ways? I don't know if you've ever thought, is it worth it? The cost, the social cost, what others will think, the personal cost, what you won't be able to do. Have you ever thought, is it worth it? And listen to David Livingston, who gave his life to taking the gospel to Africa. He said, for my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God appointed me 
to such an office. People talk of sacrifice, the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and the bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word and such a view and such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say it rather, it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, and foregoing the common conveniences and charities of this life. They may make us pause and they may make the spirit waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which will, reveal, which will be revealed in and for us. And he says these famous words, I never made a sacrifice. When you have confidence in the love of God, and the view that from the setting of the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, that the name of the Lord will be made great among the nations when that's your view of God. Oh, our spirit may waver, our heart may sink, the thought may rise that it's not worth it to serve him. But in the end, God's children will say, as we gather around the throne, we never made a sacrifice because he was worth it. And the sacrifice that we make is a privilege for his name. That's what God's calling us to as his people. As our band comes to close us, chapter four ends with this conclusion. Ask really two questions. Are you ready for the Lord to return? He says, if you are, then humble yourself because when God comes, he's going to judge the arrogant and the evildoers should be impressed with that catch. When God comes, he's going to judge the arrogant and evildoers. But verse two, but for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Joy, healing, and restoration is promised for those who trust in the Lord. Judgment for those who puff themselves up against God and resist him. There's only one way to be ready to meet God, and that's to bow your knee in humility and submission to him today. If you don't know him, if you haven't trusted him, his word hasn't changed. He's inviting you to do what he's always invited every person from everywhere to do. That's to admit that you need him, to turn from your own way, and to trust in him. But the second question that Malachi ends with is how do, we, how do we live as we wait for Jesus's return? Look at verse four. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. You see, just like we need to be reassured of God's love, we need to be reassured of our future. God says he's coming again. The day of the Lord is coming. He's going to send one like Elijah. That one like Elijah would prove to be John the Baptist in the New Testament, a, a messenger preparing the way of the Lord. But the Lord would come. 
And when Jesus came the first time, he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bring salvation. He came to seek and save the lost. And he came to bring salvation through laying down his life for us. Do you know the last word of the Old Testament is destruction? It's a sobering thought, right? Unless I bring utter destruction, God says. What is our hope that utter destruction isn't our end? Our hope is that Jesus came. He took the curse of sin for us on the cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, says the law. Jesus said, I'll hang on the tree in your place and for your sin, becoming a curse for you. And so as we wait for the, for the Lord, we wait with obedience, we remember the law, we're called to continue in obedience, motivated by God's love, motivated by his return. But we also wait with confidence. You see, the Old Testament saints were just like we are, saved by grace through faith, by grace through looking ahead to God's promises fulfilled in Christ. And today we're saved by grace through faith by looking back to the fulfillment of those promises in Christ on our behalf through his death and resurrection. So we, we live today in between the already and the not yet. Jesus came and yet he hasn't fully fulfilled all that he's promised to do. He's brought salvation, he's begun restoration, but it won't be completed until he returns. And so as we live our everyday life, we live with a sense of competence, a sense of anticipation of what Jesus is coming to do. And you know why that's important? That's important because I think it's so easy to get caught up with living for the here and now, to finding all our satisfaction in the here and now, to finding our meaning and fulfillment in the here and now. But God tells us that what's to come is where our ultimate fulfillment lies. So it helps us to live with the tension between the disappointments and the discouragements of this life with the confidence that God is working out all things according to his plan. And so we wait with that confidence as his people, assured of his love, confident of our future. We can live lives marked by genuine worship, by holiness and and righteousness and and generosity and, and humble service to God. That's how I want to return to normal, confident of his love, certain of our future, living lives wholly given to God. Is there anything that you're holding back from God? As we close and sing, I just want that to be on your thought, in your thoughts. Is there anything you're holding back from God? Any complacency in your heart? Any discouragement that you need to be honest with God about? Any compromise in your life, areas of sin? that have just kind of taken on a life of their own, perhaps, more than you thought or imagined. And you just need to bring it to God. Know that you can bring it to him, not doubting whether he loves you, but confident that his love won't change. He demonstrated it on the cross so that we might come just as we are to him. So when life goes back to normal, whenever that is and whatever it looks like, Will you be ready to give yourself wholly to God? The only way to know that is to ask yourself where you're at right now. Are you giving yourself wholly to God? If not, what's keeping you back?